It must have been tough growing up with Alfred and Enid Lambert. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of September's book, The Corrections by Jonathan Franson, which was published in 2001. So each month I take a book, I split it into two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'd love to know your thoughts on the book so far. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to page 325 of the corrections. Alfred and Enid live together in a large house. Enid tries to protect Alfred, who's suffering from Parkinson's disease. So she's protecting him from various bills that come through the door. The characterisation is brilliantly written. Already we see Enid lying to herself. She talks of, quote, the dampness of the workshop that smelled like urine but could not possibly be urine. A few pages later we hear that the only dust-free objects in the room were the wicker love seat, a can of rust-oleum and some brushes and a couple of Euban coffee cans which despite increasingly strong olfactory evidence Enid chose not to believe were filling up with her husband's urine because what earthly reason could he have with a nice little half bathroom not 20 feet away for peeing in a Euban can. He has a desk in the basement. Quote, it's the fate of most ping pong tables in home basements, eventually to serve the ends of other more desperate games. After Alfred retired, he appropriated the eastern end of the table for his banking and correspondence. At the western end was the portable colour TV on which he'd intended to watch the local news while sitting in his great blue chair. Lovely little details about the ping pong table there. Now, Alfred worked in engineering for the Midland Pacific Railroad that's sometimes called Midpac. And when he retired, he, quote, after a lifetime of providing for others, he needed more than just comfort. He needed a monument to this need. So he went alone to a non-discount furniture store and picked out a chair of permanence, an engineer's chair, a chair so big that even a big man got lost in it a chair designed to bear up under heavy stress. And because the blue of its leather vaguely matched the blue in the Chinese rug, Enid had no choice but to suffer its deployment in the family room. I love that free indirect discourse, the after a lifetime of providing for others. Whose opinion is that? Is that Alfred's? It's not the narrator's. This narrator is very observational. It reminds me a little bit of Jane Austen, quite old fashioned, but I'm enjoying it so far. Now, Alfred's only real joy is seeing his children. It's happening at the weekend, but he's confused and starts packing his suitcase, even though it's only Thursday. They meet their son, Chip, at the airport. And Chip used to be an academic before he was fired for an indiscretion. And we know him as a writer. He seems to be a bit of a layabout. He still remembers being spanked by Albert as a child and thinks, quote, He knew Alfred underneath to be a shouter and a punisher. Now we learn Edith has a bad hip and they go from the airport to Chip's apartment block and we really get a feel for Edith's character. She's mightily impressed with the fact that Chip's classmates are doing so well in life. Quote, he and his wife just had their fourth child. I told you, didn't I? They built that enormous house out in Paradise Valley. Al, didn't you count eight bedrooms? Alfred gave her a steady, unblinking look. Chip leaned on the door closed button. Dad and I were at the housewarming in June, Enid said. It was spectacular. They'd had it catered and they had pyramids of shrimp. It was solid shrimp in pyramids. I've never seen anything like it. I love that reference to a solid shrimp pyramid as if the thing of value that she took from the house, that's the main thing of value that she took from the housewarming. Not the value of any friendships she may have formed, but just this very impressive shrimp pyramid. She goes on, quote, Anyway, it's a beautiful house, Enid said. There are at least six bedrooms and you know it looks like they're going to fill them. Dean's tremendously successful. He started that lawn care business when he decided the mortuary business wasn't for him. Well, you know, Dale Driblet's his stepdad, you know. And she blathers on without Chip getting a word in edgeways. Now Julia, his girlfriend, is at the flat and is checked over by Enid. She has to leave and Chip asks her whether she has read his script or given it to Eden, I presume a film producer of some sort. She objects to the academic opening of his script and the male objectification of the female lead and then she leaves. And he chases after her and he bumps into Denise, his sister, and also a chef. He asks her to, quote, 
hold the fort while he tries to get Julia back, but to also try to make changes to the script. Amongst other corrections, which are sure to happen in this novel, I wonder whether his desire to correct this script gives the novel its title. We go back in time and learn of Chip's life as an academic teacher and how a student called Melissa tried to seduce him, a bit like the plot in his screenplay. Now, Chip is lonely. He goes to New York from Connecticut. Quote, Every sidewalk in Lower Manhattan was dotted with the metallic squared spirals of anti-theft badges. The badges were bonded to the wet pavement with the world's strongest glue. And after Chip had bought some imported cheeses, he did this every time he visited New York to be sure of accomplishing at least one thing before returning to Connecticut. And yet it felt a little sad to buy the same baby Gruyere and Fournier d'Ambert at the same store. It brought him up against the more general failure of consumerism as an approach to human happiness. Now, a new theorist in the department called Wendler O'Fallon is making him feel insecure about his job. He finally succumbs to Melissa's advances, understanding that he is flouting the regulations that he helped write, and he spends carnal nights with her at a hotel and takes drugs. Afterwards, he feels really guilty and a lot of shame. Then we flip back to the present. Denise and Chip's brother, Gary, discuss wanting their parents to sell their house. It appears Alfred and Enid are a bit hard up, and Alfred has care needs. And we hear the story of Alfred's employment as a train engineer. It's a bit of an info dump, a lot of telling rather than showing. Franson seems to favour this form of storytelling to impart large bodies of information. So Enid and Denise are at Chip's flat. Enid tells Denise that she has a letter offering $5,000 for one of Alfred's patents, but he is not being, quote, aggressive enough, I assume in accepting or counter-offering. Denise is on her father's side on the matter, so Enid doesn't tell her she's actually hidden his acceptance letter to try and extract a bigger fee. Now, Enid asks Denise if she'll come for one last Christmas at their family home in St. Jude. And then we cut to Chip feeling very unhappy about being forced to resign from his post at college due to his relationship with Melissa, but failing to be properly depressed. Quote, he felt as if he lacked the ability to lose all volition and connection with reality, the way depressed people did in books and movies. It seemed to him, as he silenced the TV and hurried into his kitchen, that he was failing even at the miserable task of falling apart. Now, Chip gets a job as a proofreader with Julia Frey's husband, who's called Doug. He's a mergers and acquisition specialist. And then he meets Julia through his sister, Denise. Julia is an assistant to this Eden lady, who's actually a film producer. Now we have a lot more telling when we hear about Julia's husband, the Deputy Prime Minister of Lithuania. Chip is desperately trying to get his script, called The Academy Purple, produced into a film and bumps into Eden Procuro and her family at a fish shop as he's comically trying to conceal a very large fish he accidentally bought. He feels he's not in a position to discuss his script and is talked at. He gets chatting with Eden's young husband who is into bioengineering and is excited about a new type of squash. Then we go back to the party that Chip left in New York. Enid is telling all her friends Chip works for a law firm, which Denise says is misleading. And then we go back to Chip. He's trying to chase Julia without success. And now he's trying to get to Eden to maybe ask her to ignore the first monologue in his script and cut the too many, according to Julia, references to breasts. When he gets to her office, Eden says in her blunt way that his relationship is over. Quote, it is absolutely over and I'm thinking you might enjoy a little change of scenery. She brings him into her office when who should be sitting there but Gitanus, which is Julia's husband and the Deputy Prime Minister of Lithuania. Now Julia's daughter is there scribbling on the back of his script, which upsets Chip a lot. The Lithuanian politician Gitanus asks Chip if he wants to work for him by posing as a satisfied American customer in the sale of Lithuania's sand and gravel assets to American investors. He goes on to explain how criminality is rife in Lithuania, drugs, criminal warlords, child prostitution, commonplace in his country, and where, quote, a young generation grew up in a state of moral anarchy and are hungry. And I'm just going to pause here because I find it problematic knowing that Lithuania is a flourishing and modern European country in 2022. I know this story is set 20 years ago, but I don't think it's changed that much. It just seems to be a stereotype 
European nation state to fit Franzen's plot. And this poor deputy prime minister is painted in such a poor light. He has, quote, crooked teeth and bad posture, hands stubby and unmanicured, and he, quote, crossed his arms in the wound up European style, his fist jammed into his armpits. It's such a stereotype of the typical European. Why couldn't Franzen use an imaginary nation state to create his othered country as a contrast with America? What do you think? Now, Chip is quite excited about escaping New York, especially since his script idea has failed. In a typically academic way, he's excited by the, quote, prospect of getting on a plane and putting 5,000 miles between himself and the nightmare of his life in New York City. What made drugs perpetually so sexy was the opportunity to be other. And the idea of being other excites him. Just as an aside, the portrayal of Lithuania seems to be othered by the author. I don't think even 20 years ago Lithuania was anything like this portrayal. I think that he's using the country as a kind of joke country where everything is othered and backward, as I said. A quick Wikipedia of Lithuania reads, quote, Lithuania is a developed country with a high-income advanced economy ranking very high in the Human Development Index. It ranks favourably in terms of civil liberties, press freedom, internet freedom, de democratic governance and peacefulness. Lithuania is a member of the European Union, the Council of Europe, Eurozone, the Nordic Investment Bank, Schengen Agreement, NATO and OECD. It participates in the Nordic Baltic 8, MB8, regional cooperation format and is a permanent observer of Nordic Council. I feel like he's exploiting a legitimate country to make a humorous point in his book. What do you think? you find it a bit too much, this portrayal of Lithuania? I think an imaginary state would be much funnier. Anyway, back to the narrative, and we go back in time to hear how close-minded Enid is, a little bit more. How she liked her nice society and how it upset her that, quote, her children didn't want the things that she and all her friends and all her friends' children wanted. Her children wanted things radically, shamefully other things. Now I'm thinking... Yes, that's interesting, but how is Enid's conservative, closed-minded, suburban attitude going to affect the narrative or her children? They're all grown-up adults now. The narrator seems to be doing loads of Enid bashing. For what purpose? Is it just humour? Hopefully it'll be worthwhile and Enid's retrograde attitudes will have an impact on the lives of others and the ongoing narrative. We hear of Enid's shock at Denise getting married to the Canadian Emile and then divorcing five years later, she equates the marriage to the onset of Alfred's Parkinson's. She was not keen on Emil. Now Gary, Edith's son, has confided in Edith that Denise is currently having an affair with a married man. This immorality has angered Edith, but she can't come right out and say anything because she does not want to betray Gary's confidence. And then we cut to Gitanus. He's purchased Lithuania.com and by, quote, Sending just $100, for example, an American investor could have a street in Vilnius, no less than 200 meters in length, named after him. For $5,000, the free market party company would hang a portrait of the investor, minimum size 60 centimeters by 80 centimeters, includes ornate gilt frame. In the Gallery of National Heroes at the historic Slapalai House, for $25,000, the investor would be awarded perpetual title to eponymous town of no fewer than 5,000 souls, and be granted a modern hygienic form of doigt de signor that met most of the guidelines established by the Third International Conference on Human Rights. Chip comes back from Gitanus's office and finds his family are not there anymore. Denise has taken Alfred and Enid to the pier, where their Nordic Pleasure Lines cruise sets off. Now, Denise promises she'll help to persuade Gary to join them for perhaps one last Christmas at St. Jude's. Then we have Chip joining Gitanus in a flight to Helsinki. Now, I hope Gitanus didn't know about their affair all along and is kidnapping him. Maybe this is all a ruse. His description of his country did seem very unlikely. Now, he recalls how Julia ditched Gitanus and Gitanus did surveillance on her and has a CD of photos. Chip tells him not to look at them and it is revealed that Chip was Julia's lover and Gitanus is enraged. Then we cut to Gary Lambert, worried about his mental health. 
He's the president of Centros Bank. He makes photographic enlargements in the darkroom as a hobby. And I think that his mix of chemicals to create a visual image may be related to the concern he has on the mix of chemicals in his brain, serotonin, etc., to create his mental image of the world. Quote, Gary was nothing if not conscientious. As he entered the darkroom, he estimated that his levels of neurofactor 3, i.e. serotonin, a very, very important factor, posting 7-day or even 30-day highs. This factor 2 and factor 7 levels were likewise outperforming expectations. Now, perhaps not entirely coincidentally, there is a problem with his chemicals that are creating yellow blobs on the prints he is making of his parents. Enid phones and there's a brilliant scene where everyone is talking at once and trying to get their point across as Gary speaks to his mother on the phone about whether they'll be able to travel from their home in Philadelphia to St. Jude for Christmas. The last eight Christmases, Enid and Alfred have come to Gary and Caroline's, his wife, in Philadelphia. And Gary tries to persuade Alfred to sell the patent for a whopping $200,000, but Alfred won't have any of it. Gary is keen for Alfred to increase the offer because he knows Alfred's healthcare may be expensive and he, i.e. Gary, will have to foot the bill. Quote, Gary insisted, if Enid and Alfred ever ran out of money, it would fall to him and Caroline, not his undercapitalized sister, not to his feckless brother to pay for their care, but he had enough self-control not to spell this out for Alfred. Now, Gary agrees to buy his son's surveillance equipment as a hobby for him. This is Caleb. This is very bizarre. How is this going to be used in France's narrative? Gary gets angry with his son when he flips out at immediately not getting the equipment because it's past six o'clock. They're really bad parents. And then Gary gets morose and thinks, quote, he survived from day to day by distracting himself from underground truths that day by day grew more compelling and decisive. The truth that he was going to die, that heaping your tomb with treasure wouldn't save you. Now he thinks that Caroline is eavesdropping on him and a marital battle between their two states of mental health is exposed. Quote, Caroline slumped on the oaken king-sized bed. After she and Gary were married, she'd undergone five years of twice-weekly therapy, which the therapist at the final session had declared an unqualified success and which had given her a lifelong advantage over Gary in the race for mental health. Now he gets shouty with Caroline and Aaron, his youngest son, asks him to stop. He feels waves of guilt. His father was also a shouter, but quote, he so frightened young Gary that it never occurred for him to intercede. He worries that, quote, Caroline was on the verge of accusing him of being depressed. And he was afraid that if the idea that he was depressed gained currency, he would forfeit the right to his opinions. He would forfeit his moral certainties. Every word he spoke would become a symptom of disease. He would never again win an argument. Now he thinks about his mind very scientifically, as if he were adding chemicals for photographic processing. Quote, his mental markets, glycemic, endocrine, over the synapse were crashing. Gary is also a secret drinker of gin. He's possibly got an alcohol addiction. When Caleb, incidentally a famous biblical spy, mentions he wants to do surveillance on the kitchen, Gary refuses, possibly because of his drink problem. He also thinks he may have something called anhedonia, which is the inability to express pleasure and a warning sign. Now this narrator is obsessed by Gary and his navel gazing. What about Caroline and the boys? They don't seem to have as much a voice in this section and I'm hoping they will. Anyway, Gary loves to grill, just as he is constantly grilling himself and his family, quote, on the deck in the radiant heat, as he blackened the prawns and seared the swordfish, a wariness overtook him. The aspects of his life not related to grilling now seem like mere blips of extraneity between the poundingly recurrent moments when he ignited the mesquite and paced the deck avoiding smoke. Shutting his eyes, he saw twisted boogers of browning meat on a grill of chrome and hellish coals, the eternal broiling, broiling of the damned, the parching torments of compulsive repetition. Now Gary Googles the company that wants to buy Alfred's patent, and it does appear that it's a hugely wealthy operation. And this makes him believe that Alfred is justified in asking for more than $5,000, i.e. $200,000. But Alfred is resistant. He says, quote, it is moot now. The documents have been notarized. 
that we, the reader, know that Enid has squirreled away those signed documents in the hope of getting more money. How will this backfire to hilarious effect? I cannot wait to see. Now they have a huge row over the telephone and Alfred only agrees to come over for 48 hours. Now Gary is upset by this because he really wants to show off his family and his community. Quote, he'd hoped his parents would stay for an entire week in October. He'd wanted them to eat pie in Lancaster County, see a production at the Annenberg Centre, drive in the Poconos, pick apples in Westchester, hear Aaron playing the trumpet, watch Caleb playing soccer, take delight in Jonah's company and generally see how good Gary's life was, how worthy of their admiration and respect. And 48 hours was not enough time. I think that's very sad. He's still enthralled to his parents. They must be so controlling. And Gary feels like he's going to be responsible for Alfred throughout his decline. Quote, The old iron horse was careering toward a crash and Gary could hardly stand to look. Because who else, if not Gary, was going to take responsibility? Enid was hysterical and moralising. Denise lived in a fantasy land and Chip hadn't been to St Jude in three years. Who else but Gary was going to say, this train should not be running on these tracks? Now Gary wants Alfred and Enid to sell up and he isn't discreet about it. Quote, Dad, if you don't put yourself into somewhere manageable, you're going to hurt yourself. He's really mean to him. And when Alfred is morose, Gary says to him, quote, why bother staying alive if that's your attitude? What do you have to look forward to? Gary then suggests he should travel and Alfred says that Gary's depressed, which really upsets him. They go to a museum in St. Jude and the narrator thinks, quote, what Gary hated most about the Midwest was how unpampered and unprivileged he felt in it. St. Jude in its optimistic egalitarianism consistently failed to accord him the respect to which his gifts and attainments entitled him very funny. He comes across as a very bad person. <laughs> anyway, it's March and Gary is visiting St Jude with Jonah. Jonah is the perfect grandson and Enid invites him to Christmas. Gary complains that he shouldn't talk about Christmas in March and then thinks, quote, enlisting Jonah directly in her campaign, exploiting a little boy for a leverage, seemed to Gary a low trick on Enid's part. After he put Jonah to bed, he told his mother that Christmas ought to be the last of her worries. He's comic book horrible. The narrator shows the root cause when they say, quote, his entire life was set up as a correction of his father's life and he and Caroline had long agreed that Alfred was clinically depressed and clinical depression was known to have genetic basis and to be substantially heritable. And so Gary had no choice but to keep testing anhedonia, keep gritting his teeth, keep doing his best to have fun. Caroline explains why she doesn't want to spend more than 48 hours with Enid and Alfred in St Jude this Christmas. Quote, the truth, Caroline said, is that 48 hours sounds just about right to me. I don't want my children looking back on Christmas as the time when everybody screams at each other, which basically seems to be unavoidable now. Your mother walks in the door with 360 days worth of Christmas mania she'd been obsessing since the previous January. And then, of course, where's that Austrian reindeer figurine? Don't you like it? Don't you use it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is the Austrian reindeer figurine? She's got her food obsessions, her money obsessions, her clothes obsessions. She's got the whole 10-piece set baggage, which my husband used to agree is kind of a problem. But now suddenly, out of the blue, he's taking her side. We're turning to the house inside out, looking for a piece of $13 gift store kitsch because it has sentimental value to your mother. It sounds just like a scene out of the Griswold Family Christmas, if you've ever watched it. In fact, a lot of parts of this book remind me of that movie. For example, the Annette brother-in-law, the elderly grandparents in their dotage. I digress. We cut to a scene where Gary and Denise are watching a presentation by Curly Abel from Axon Corporation about the benefits of their company's new invention, the Correctol process, which can cure degenerative diseases. Hopefully there's some hope for Alfred then. And is that why Alfred was so reticent to squeeze Axon for more money? He knows their invention could help him. And will Enid and Gary's plan to get more money backfire and stop him from being cured? Large investors are wary about investing in Axon, but Gary, quote, saw an opportunity here to make some money and avenge Axon's screwing of his father and more generally be bold where Alfred had been timid. 
So he tries to invest in as many funds as he is able to in Axon. Now remember he doesn't know that Enid still has Alfred's signed agreement. He believes Alfred has been screwed by selling his patent for a measly $5,000. Gary's miserable home life means that he's very happy working a 40-hour week and he'd like it to be more. He'd like it to be 50 hours. And through a number of failures of his colleagues and friends, Gary doesn't manage to get as many shares in Axon as he'd like. So he thinks he's going to go directly to the Axon board and demand 5,000 shares for screwing over an old man in the Midwest, i.e. his father. Now Gary goes on a bike ride with the kids, but only thinks they're being nice and getting him out of the house because Caroline has told them that he's clinically depressed. He's very paranoid. Denise and Gary attend an Axon talk on Coractol and it has the ability to reprogram the mind, to correct the mind. It's a wonder drug in stage one trials, a good few years off the market. Now, I think it's probably just snake oil. I predict a big fall for Gary's finances if he does invest heavily. Does the title of the novel get its name from this wonder drug? It can correct the mind, although there are a lot of characters in the novel that are in need of corrections. Now, Gary approaches the CEO and says that his father should have been offered more money, which the CEO does not agree with. And then Denise softens things and asks the CEO of Axon if their father can be included in trials. She is not opposed to the idea, although the father would have to come at least twice a week for six months. And she tells Denise to speak directly with Curly Abel, who's the chief inventor at Axon. When Gary says his family wants to buy 5,000 shares, the CEO laughs in his face and says... Quote, so does everyone in this room. Gary is furious at that. Then Denise agrees to host Enid and Albert in Philadelphia for six months if Alfred wants to try the drug testing. It'll also give them a chance to try out Philadelphia since that's what Gary wants, so that they're closer and he doesn't have to travel such long distances. Enid loves St. Jude though, so it might be difficult. Gary says that he didn't plant the seed of suspicion in Ina's head that Denise is having an affair with a married man. Continuing the narrative, Gary comes home early from work because Caroline is worried that there is a man in a truck opposite their house eyeing it up to burgle. And when he does come home early, nothing seems to be out of place. He makes his famous mixed grill and chokes on some tough meat. That's another reminder of the Griswold family Christmas. Gary is trying to deny his spiralling mental health just as the character played by Chevy Chase does. Quote, Dad, are you feeling okay? Aaron said. Gary wiped his chin. Fine, Aaron, thank you. Chicken's a little tough, a little tough. He coughed, his esophagus a column of flame. Maybe you want to go lie down, Caroline said, as to a child. I think I'll trim that hedge, Gary said. You seem pretty tired, Caroline said. Maybe you should lie down instead. Not tired, Caroline. Just got some smoke in my eyes. Gary... I know you're telling everybody I'm depressed, but as it happens, I'm not, the narrator goes on. He understood what was happening away from the table. He was cursing in front of his kids. He was saying, F this, Caroline, F you whispering. I'm going to effing go trim that effing hedge. Gary is completely losing it. And just like in the movie, he goes out, uses heavy power tools and a ladder inappropriately and ends up getting hurt. He even laughs at himself in a mirror to check he could still do it. After this breakdown, he confesses to Caroline that he is depressed and that they don't need to go to St. Jude's for Christmas as a family. Although he may need to go to St. Jude's on his own on Christmas Eve and then come home on Christmas Day. And then they make love. So this is a bit of an epiphany moment for Gary. And then he gets a call from Edith on her cruise and he feels pangs of guilt for breaking his Christmas promise to visit St. Jude's with the whole family. And then we cut to Enid and Alfred on their cruise. Enid is reflecting on her less than ideal marriage to Alfred and that she always wanted three kids. And then we cut to when Enid is pregnant with the knees. Alfred has been made an assistant chief engineer at Midland Pacific Railroad, called Midpac, and the company is considering purchasing Erie Belt Railroad. So Alfred is inspecting all the track from Erie Belt. He's appalled at the Midwestern attitude of the workers there, especially the phrase, take it easy, quote, on the high prairie where he'd grown up, a person who took it easy wasn't much of a man. Now came a new effeminate generation for whom easygoing was a compliment. He compares the Erie Belt Railroad to Midpac, which is much more advanced network. And by day he, quote, 
feels like a man, but at night he tosses and turns in motel rooms, panicking about the fornication he can hear and blaming everyone for his lack of sleep. On his way home from his 11-day expedition, he gets talking to his banker friend, Chuck Meisner, next-door neighbour, quote, Chuck had grown up on a farm near Cedar Rapids and the optimism of his nature was rooted in the deep, well-watered topsoil of eastern Iowa. Farmers in eastern Iowa never learned not to trust the world, whereas any soil that might have nurtured hope in Alfred had blown away in one or another West Kansan drought. There's more generalisations about people from the Midwest, and we'll have more on that later. He tells Chuck that Midpack are going to purchase Erie Belt, but tells him to keep it secret. Hmm, I wonder if he will. Now, initially, when I read this passage, I thought he was asking Chuck to keep the knowledge of his ill son's secret, but he obviously doesn't give two hoots about his son's illnesses. Listen to the passage directly. So, Chuck said, I imagine there's been a public announcement. Alfred says, no, no announcement. Chuck nodded, looking past Alfred at the Lambert house and says, Enid will be happy to see you. I think she's had a hard week. The boys have been sick. You'll keep that information quiet, says Alfred. Al, Al, Al. Alfred continues, I wouldn't mention it to anyone but you. And Chuck says, appreciate it. You're a good friend and a good Christian. Alfred doesn't even hear Chuck saying that his children have been ill. The implied author often does that. He'll interrupt the character's dialogue with another character's current train of thought. So in this instance, the phrase, I wouldn't mention it to anyone, is unrelated to what Chuck was just talking about i.e. the illness of his boys, it's related to the mid-pack deal. Quite likely, Alfred didn't even hear Chuck mention his boys' illnesses. He's in a world of his own. There are many times when you have to keep in the brain what each character is currently thinking. There was a great example earlier when Jonah kept on mentioning Narnia whilst this big family conversation was going on. They're all talking about different things. Anyway, as he gets home, he notices problems. There's a hedge that needs cutting and there's mess that should have been taken care of by his wife, Enid. And he says to her, quote, what is the one thing I asked you to do while I was gone? And she says, I'm catching up on laundry. The boys have been sick. And Alfred says, do you remember? I asked you to take care of the mess at the top of the stairs. That was the one thing I asked you to do while I was gone. Without waiting for an answer, he went into his metallurgy lab and dumped the magazines and jelly glasses into a heavy duty trash can. And then he starts hammering at the glass in the trash can. It's very Neanderthal, Alfred. Notice how he just ignored the the boys have been sick comment from Enid. There's no lovely to see you, Enid. How's it been for the last 11 days? He is not a great husband. Alfred shows that he rules with an iron fist when he starts counting down from five and Gary rushes to the table knowing it's better to get to the table to eat your food than to be smacked. And then there's this heartbreakingly painful dinner where Alfred's two small boys try desperately to impress their father. The boys have built planes out of balsa wood at a place called The Pack. And Alfred says, quote, He didn't think much of The Pack. A bunch of fathers taking it easy ran The Pack. Pack-sponsored activities were lightweight contests involving airplanes of balsa or cars of pine wood or trains of paper whose boxcars were books read. And Alfred seems to approve silently with all the bizarre things the boys have made with popsicle sticks, a jail, an electric chair. And when Gary says he's going to blow something up with firecrackers, the father is silent, proud of their boyish behaviour. But as soon as Enid mentions going to the Museum of Transport, he becomes negative and says, quote, what are you taking them for? In his mind, it's not authentic. Authenticity becomes very important. It's a very important idea for Alfred. Just generally, he seems like a really bad father and husband. Now, he gets a call from Chuck during the meal saying that Chuck is considering buying shares in Midpack, and he feels disgusted that his innocent conversation about his work has led to Chuck's possible financial gain. Quote, You wanted to spend your innocence on someone worthy of it, and who better than a good neighbour, but no one could be worthy of it. There was excrement all over his hands. And he has a wonderful, long, dark tea time of the soul moment, to quote Douglas Adams' novel title. That period around five o'clock when humans can sometimes feel a bit out of sorts and liable to existential angst. Quote, Alfred by the phone was studying the clock above the sink. 
The time was that malign fivishness to which the flu sufferer awakens after late afternoon fever dreams. A time shortly after five which was a mockery of five. So the face of clocks, the relief of order, two hands pointing squarely at whole numbers came only once an hour. As every other moment failed to square, so every moment held the potential for fluish misery. And to suffer like this for no reason, to know that there was no moral order in the flu, no justice in the juices of pain his brain produced, the world nothing but a materialisation of blind eternal will. Schopenhauer, no little part of the torment of existence is that time is continually pressing upon us, never letting us catch our breath, but always coming after us like a taskmaster with a whip. These little Schopenhauer interjections often come into Alfred's thoughts and they're becoming more and more prevalent. Now we have a look at Enid's life now. She did some accounting and met and fell in love with Alfred. Quote, Enid had chosen to believe in the promise of his looks. Life then became a matter of waiting for his personality to change. Chuck imagines making love to Enid rather than his wife. Now Chuck remembers the next door neighbour. This whole domestic setup of Alfred, Enid and the boys, is beautifully articulated and written and we really get a sense of the inner character and motivations of the characters. But boy, does it go on some. I'm waiting for some external action and I'm done with page after page of this internal angst. I know many of you will disagree with me, but I'm hoping something will change up soon in the narrative. For example, this is the narrator pondering neighbourhoods. Quote, whether anybody was home meant everything to a house. It was more than a major fact. It was the only fact. The family was the house's soul. The waking mind was like the light in a house. The soul was like the gopher in his hole. Consciousness was to brain as family was to house. Aristotle, suppose the eye were an animal. Sight would be its soul. To understand the mind, you picture domestic activity, the hum of related lives on varied tracks, the harsh fundamental glow. You spoke of presence and clutter and occupation, or conversely, of vacancy and shutting down, of disturbance. Hopefully you get the idea. It's beautiful lyrical writing and some lovely ideas, but let's just crack on with that story, Mr. Franson. Thank you very much. Am I being unfair? Possibly. Anyway, Alfred discovers an interesting bit of chemistry in his study and Chipper has fallen asleep at the table because he was refused to leave unless he ate something his parents wanted him to eat. Alfred puts him to bed and peers in at Gary's popsicle prison and electric chair, which in no way live up to his imaginings. Alfred has an existential crisis and thinks that everything is relative, that the real may not be as real as his imaginings. Quote, that his feeling of righteousness, of uniquely championing the real, was just a feeling. Finally, Alfred, a bit of self-realisation. The narrator goes on, And if the world refused to square with his version of reality, then it was necessarily an uncaring world, a sad and sickening world, a penal colony. That's a Schopenhauer reference. And he was doomed to be violently lonely in it. Now, it's a shame that your kids, Alfred, and your wife can't live up to your high expectations. Unfortunately for this character and this book, we know that there is no room for change. Call me soppy, but this whole section would have been a wonderful setup for Alfred's epiphany. But we know what has become of Alfred because of the novel structure. Is the author punishing Alfred's behaviour as a young father by giving him a miserable old age? What do you think? Anyway, Enid and Alfred have a row in bed. Enid is desperately unhappy that he was so horrible to her on his return and didn't even kiss her goodbye. He is horrible and Franson loves writing horrible blokes. Gary, now Alfred, is the whole point that Gary learns to be horrible from Alfred. Enid, whilst attempting to make love to Alfred, mentions that they could earn a bit of extra money with the insider information about mid-pack purchasing Eerie Belt. Unfortunately, he calls his favourite philosopher to mind and the lovemaking ends. Quote, this is Schopenhauer. The people who make money are men, not women. And from this, it follows that women are neither justified in having unconditional possession of it, nor fit persons to be entrusted with its administration. He makes love to Enid and feels guilty that she's pregnant whilst he performs the act. And so it was inevitable that Denise, when she was older, quote, betrayed him. He then recounts how he makes his afternoon naps his new mistress. And there the first half of the novel ends. 
So initial thoughts on reading the first half. I'm enjoying the book so far. Not a huge amount has happened in terms of big plots. We have the question as to how the Christmas at St Jude will pan out. And we've also got the questions about the patent uh, and whether that will go well or badly and also the insider trading. There's definitely been lots of amazing descriptions of the characters of the Lambert family. So some interesting questions. Will Chip get Anthea back? Will he make those corrections to his script? Will Denise's hiding of the patent contract backfire? Will the family be reunited for one last Christmas at St Jude? And will Denise persuade Gary to join them? It's not looking promising so far, especially since Gary has told Caroline only those who want to go have to. Now, Denise has a thing for married men and will Enid find out the truth of that. And what were those blotches in the photographic processing of that photo? They're probably just an expression of familial dysfunction. Could they be something else? And will the correctel process come to market in time to help Alfred? Or will Enid and Gary's actions stop this happening? And will Alfred agree to become involved? And will Enid persuade Alfred to buy some Erie shares? And will Chuck Meisner become rich off them, perhaps? Now, there are some very interesting ideas to come out of this first half. The idea of comparing, I think, is quite interesting. In a democracy, comparing yourself to others helps you improve, but it can have the negative effect when you compare people. Enid is constantly comparing her siblings and Arthur to others. Quote, Use it or lose it. That's what every doctor says. This is Enid speaking. Dave Shumpert has had 10 times more health problems than Dad. He's had a colostomy for 15 years. He's got one lung and a pacemaker. And look at all the things that he and Mary Beth are doing. They just got back from snorkeling in Fiji and Dave never complains, never complains. You probably don't remember Gene Grillo, Dad's old friend from Hephaestus. But he has bad Parkinson's, much, much worse than Dad's. He's still at home in Fort Wayne, but in a wheelchair now. He's really in awful shape. But Denise, he's interested in things. She goes on. Gene is in a wheelchair, completely crippled, and he's still thinking about what he can do for somebody else, while Dad, who can walk and write and dress himself, does nothing all day but sit in his chair. Now, is his attitude a byproduct of consumerist capitalist society? Now, she immediately scolds her daughter for holding a knife incorrectly, constantly comparing what she sees around her with her inner ideals of how life should proceed. A little bit like Alfred in that respect. Quote, Golly, Denise, the way you throw that knife around, I don't see how you haven't lost a finger. She really does judge others, and this is a fantastic insight into her character. It really made me think about judgment and the nature of people who like to judge or criticise others. In judging other people, really they're judging themselves. By talking of Dean Driblet in such glowing terms, quote, he has an eight-bedroom house, she's passing judgment on herself, I think. What she's really saying is, why don't I raise a son to have a happy marriage with wealth and an eight-bedroom house. Do you agree with this idea? I'm sure there's a maxim out there somewhere that goes along the lines of, be careful whom you judge, for in doing so you judge yourself. And if there isn't, I think there should be. Anyway, listen to how the narrator transmits Enid's judgment of her daughter's wine consumption. They're discussing Arthur's offer of patent money. Quote, Denise had taken a bottle of wine from the refrigerator as if to underline her indifference to a matter of consequence to Enid. Sometimes Enid believed that Denise had disdain for every last thing she cared about. The sexual tightness of Denise's balloon jeans as she bumped a drawer shut with her hip sent this message. The assurance with which she drove a corkscrew into the cork sent this message. Do you want some wine? Enid shuddered. So early in the day. Denise drank it like water. She goes on. And she's poured some wine. She says, that's too much, Denise. I don't like so much wine. She's actually judging Denise by complaining there. This free and direct discourse and her comments about how she doesn't like so much wine. Judge Maxime in reverse. By judging her own behaviour, she's actually judging Denise's. But is the author overdoing a bit? Her constant judginess does begin to grate, I think. Another idea prevalent in the novel is the idea of disease. There's some very thoughtful descriptions of Alfred's Parkinson's disease. Quote, his affliction offended his sense of ownership. These shaking hands belonged to nobody but him and yet they refused to obey him. They were like bad children. We have this Nordic pleasure line shoulder bag and that's a real representation of 
middle-class malaise, comfort and ease. The term pleasure lines conjures guaranteed pleasure and Aunt Cruz is what this type of person might be into, safe and with an air of manufactured class. All the guests are in the same boat, to extend the metaphor, where class hierarchies are clearly cut and Nordic gives that frisson of another place, somewhere slightly exotic, but no doubt all exactly the same type of people. But there's some quite a few references to this Nordic pleasure line she's told about. It's sort of a bit of a symbol, I think, in, in the first half. We also have really amazing details in the book and the significance of details. I love how the little details that characters remember really reflect their inner values. Listen to this quote from the narrator about Caroline. We're really inside Gary's head at this point. It's a close third-person narration. Quote, She was more alone in the world than he was. Her father had been a handsome, charismatic anthropologist who died in a plane crash in Mali when she was 11. Her father's parents, old Quakers, who intermittently said thee, had left her half of their estate, including a well-regarded Andrew Wyeth, three Winslow Homer watercolours, and 40 sylvan acres near Kennet Square, for which a developer had paid an incredible sum. Isn't it interesting that these are the details he remembers of her parents, what they had left her economically, rather than any love or interesting stories about their love for her. And that reference to a well-regarded painting rather than a beautiful painting really shows that he thinks economically about things. Very capitalist, money-oriented, personal psychology. And then we have all the hedge cutting, everything to do with hedges. What is it about hedges? Quote, I'm going to trim that effing hedge. That's just before his major breakdown. Are these hedges so important, they're dividing up small pockets of the country into little kingdoms, maybe? Is that the reason why these hedges are so important? Another really interesting idea to come out of the novel is the American ideal of extraordinariness and how that is flawed thinking. Listen to Gary's thoughts on trying to be extraordinary. Quote, All around him, millions of newly minted American millionaires were engaged in the identical pursuit of feeling extraordinary, of buying the perfect Victorian, of skiing the virgin slope, of knowing the chef personally, of locating the beach that had no footprints. There were further tens of millions of young Americans who didn't have money but were nonetheless chasing the perfect cool. And meanwhile, the sad truth was that not everyone could be extraordinary. Not everyone could be extremely cool. Because whom would this leave to be ordinary? Who would perform the thankless work of being comparatively uncool? Does it remind you a little bit of Janina's lazy Venus syndrome from Drive Your Plough in the last month's book? Gary goes on to describe how the folk of St Jude encompass this ordinariness. And as I mentioned previously, we've got that stereotyping of the small European state, the othering. I've already mentioned Lithuania is in fact a developed nation and was developed when this book was written. I think the author's being a bit lazy picking out this country. He should have invented some backward state for the anti-American state that he needed for his narrative. Another interesting idea is Alfred's aggression. Listen to this aggression towards his son at mealtime. Do me a favour and stop playing with your food and finish your dinner right now. Do you understand me? You will finish it right now or there will be no dessert and no other privileges tonight or tomorrow night and you will sit here until you do finish it. Daddy though, can you? And he's interrupted. Right now, do you understand me or do you need a spanking? I think his kids are going to end up having terrible relationship with food and the constant threat of being beaten must be so draining. Poor Chip. I'm surprised he's turned out as, as well as he has. Anyway, just a few little ideas I picked out that first half. I'm sure you've got many and I'd love for you to share them below or send me an email and maybe I could share them in the next podcast. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Elle said... This left quite the impression. All I can say is that this novel had maybe the best payoff for any book I remember reading. I absolutely adore Janina Dejeko. Her character just became more and more likeable to me as the story went on. With every new idiosyncrasy revealed, I was increasingly enamoured. By the end, there was really nothing that she could do which would turn me off of her. 
along with her band of misfits whom are lovingly given nicknames like Oddball, Dizzy and Good News. I can guarantee you that even if you don't take to her personally, that this is a collection of characters unlike any you've encountered before. And Gibran said, I've thought long and hard what to make of the lead protagonist, one Janina Jajako, an eccentric woman on the cusp of old age, living in an isolated hamlet surrounded by mountains and forests along the Polish-Czech border, a woman whose love for animals surpasses everything she might feel for her fellow human beings and who believes that the apparently defenceless animals possess the means and the intelligence to take revenge on the humans who inflict cruelty and death upon them for sports. Janina may be suffering from many ailments, but she's sturdy, mobile, and full of wit. She loves Blake, the champion of animal rights and nature. Every chapter starts with an epigram of Blake's verses and believes in an astrological cosmic order in spite of being godless. Well, you can only be godless if God exists, she'd say. But there's one thing that sets her apart from everyone around her. She's an animal rights extremist without realising it, which is a common characteristic of all kinds of extremists. This novel packs a lot. It is easy to dismiss it as the ravings of a crazy old woman holding up a nasty world view, a true oddball if there was one, which is something the author foresaw and afforded preemptive defence by arguing that that's because society does not respect old women and takes seriously anything they have to say. At another point, she defends her contrasting lack of sympathy for humans who kill animals by holding up the idea of the sanctity of all life, though not very convincingly. However, I still feel the novel takes a very black and white approach in how it deals with hard questions. I wasn't looking for a counter-argument, but a more nuanced narrative that would seek out something more profound, more philosophical than a straight-up denunciation of hunters and, by extended logic, everyone involved in the preparation and consumption of meat as evil people. But there is an argument to be made that the author has designed Janina to uncover the full extent of moral double standards and the sheer hypocrisy of the political as well as religious elite when it comes to these issues, and in doing so has compelled us to ask difficult questions about the nature of hunting versus poaching, or even ethical slaughtering, about the exploitation of nature for commercial greed, about the universal or selective sanctity of life, and about being the only crazy person among all the same people. Or is it the other way around? So who would you support in a world where innocent animals had the will and the brains to take revenge against the sapiens who kill them without a shred of remorse? Don't answer if you're human, Janina would say. Make of that what you will. Thank you very much for those comments. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of the corrections in three weeks, and that's the 30th of September, October's podcast will be all about The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your podcast app. Thanks. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of the corrections in three weeks' time. See you then.